We're gonna be alright I wanna see you fly Come on, let's go Let's go with grace Hey, and welcome to the Soul Force Podcast. Go with grace, responding to white Christian supremacy with resistance and resilience. I'm your host, Grace Nichols. Here we ask, what is white Christian supremacy and how does it show up in our daily lives? This episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with journalist Chrissy Stroop about how white Christian supremacy shows up in the media, especially in news coverage. Chrissy has a PhD in modern Russian history and is a columnist for the British media organization Open Democracy. She's also a senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches that does investigative research and analysis on the U.S. right, including Christian hegemony, which is just another word for Christian supremacy or dominance. She lives in Oregon with her sweet dog, Percy. I've been following Chrissy's work for years, and recently she wrote an article covering a new $100 million PR campaign to make Jesus look cooler, funded by the religious right called He Gets Us. We also talked about the strategy of moral panic to make people afraid of things like critical race theory. In case you don't know what that means, critical race theory, or CRT, examines the role of race and race dynamics. Chrissy really helps break down why something like critical race theory is perceived as threatening and how the religious right has been able to so effectively exploit this fear. Chrissy also takes me through the connection between Christianity and the January 6th insurrection and why organizations fighting oppression need to make this connection too. She talks about how mainstream media is complicit in the Christian right blaming the collapse of morality in this country on secularization, when in reality, a lot of the harm and division we experience is due to white Christian supremacy. I'll be sure to include ample links to Chrissy's critical and astute work in the show notes. Here's my conversation with columnist, speaker, and writer, Chrissy Stroop. Hi, Grace. Hey. How's it going? All right. How are you today? Hanging in there. I just haven't been very productive this week. I just kind of needed a little to pull back this week some for mental health purposes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that I'm realizing that I don't know is really explicit in Soul Force world either, but kind of exactly what you said. Like, I'm finding this work to increasingly be triggering, um, which I don't know why that's a surprise. Percy. <laughs> um yeah i mean it used i feel like it used to be easier for me or i just didn't understand immediately how much of a toll it was taking but i also think it's just like we're really losing right now like the bad guys are winning right so that makes it more intense yeah a lot more <laughs> difficult to uh approach it in a way that yeah that feels manageable yeah, because, you know, now you just, you see all these things escalating, like the actual child abuse investigations that they've opened up on loving parents of trans kids in Texas. I have an article that'll be coming out about that soon with Open Democracy, a reported piece where I talked to parents uh, from two families and I talked to a um, legal expert, a, a law professor who is in Texas and 
it was a very heavy thing to to write and to um, hear those stories. Um, you know, just being so viciously targeted. Oops, there's that door. <laughs> All good. It's surreal and shocking, and yet what I really enjoy about your writing is that you really try to drive that point home that this should not be shocking. Um, if we can track the patterns correctly, then uh, we see how intentional uh, these mm -hmm. awful things have been and have been built up over time. And I think that so much of the public would love to just have the shocking things that are now on the surface, just kind of go away from the surface and, and be happy to just kind of go back to the status quo and thinking everything is fine when it's not. Yes, and I always think that really speaks to uh, people's privileges, the, the distance they're able to take if they're mm -hmm. not impacted by an issue. And we all have them, but a lot of us are feeling a lot of, <laughs> a lot of impact right now. Yeah. Before we get too much further, I'd love uh, for you to let the good listeners know just a bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, um, I grew up, you know, kind of in the thick of the Christian right with a Christian school teacher mom and my dad, a music pastor and going to Christian schools. Um, did not know that I was queer until I was about, no, I was, thir I was 33, my Jesus year, I guess. <laughs> um, Perfect timing. Yeah, because I didn't have the, the language or just the broader knowledge to think about it and understand it. And I spent so much of my youth in this kind of like protracted, painful existential crisis of what everyone is calling deconstruction now. And I spent much of my teens and twenties trying really hard to stay in evangelical Christianity and ultimately failing. I also have a PhD in modern Russian history. Um, those things are actually sort of connected. I, I, I did short-term mission trips to Russia twice. What well, was one of the things that contributed to my deconstruction? Uh, I was just not impressed with, with missionaries. <laughs> so um, I, I decided to study Russian and, and I had also gotten uh, interested in studying history. So I got this PhD in modern Russian history. I, I have not been able to get a tenure track job. And then I gave up on trying to get a tenure track job in academia at all. I had been doing more public-facing writing. And because of my areas of expertise, I started kind of blowing up on Twitter around the 2016 election cycle. Everyone was interested in the Russia connection to Trump and more broadly to the American right. And I had already been doing research and publishing research on that. And people wanted to know about the Christian right and why they were backing Trump. Now I'm just a, a full-time writer, uh, primarily a columnist for open democracy and a senior correspondent for religion dispatches you know narratives and stories are maybe how we we ultimately get people to connect who have never lived right. these kinds of experiences and maybe to understand the issues with christian right theology and ideology that i think it's important for people to understand right now right and the the impact worldwide uh i think mm -hmm. particularly gets lost within the United States. I've known and followed your work for a really long time, but I really wanted to talk about this, um, this essay in particular, the one year after January 6th and mm -hmm. the media still refusing to recognize authoritarian Christianity. 
I wrote this note uh, to myself of when it comes to religion, when it comes to Christianity, naming what is and not glorifying or romanticizing and stating that, that faith is important. But what is your faith if you are not willing to admit the legacy of religious harm? Sure. And um, I mean, we have to, I think, look at this too through a lens of the concept of Christian privilege. Because clearly the default in our society is not just, you know, the person who is centered as kind of like the default person, like you're going to make a character, it's going to be a white straight male, right? Like doing the great American road trip or whatever. Well, Christianity is also a part of that, right? White straight Christian man is kind of the person who has the most privilege in the United States. But people can be really resistant to seeing and talking about uh, Christian privilege and Christian hegemony. And the media is really resistant to taking any sort of critical stance toward any large group of Christians, even uh, the ones who are extremely organized and working to take LGBTQ people's rights away and anyone who can get pregnant's rights away and, and so forth. But yeah, so Christian privilege, it's very much a thing. I think we need to get talk, used to talking about things like Christian privilege and Christian fragility, while at the same time recognizing that there are other intersections in play and they're not evenly distributed. And also recognizing the uh, important legacy for social justice of the black church in the United States. It's not to say that black Christianity has no issues with patriarchy or homophobia or transphobia, but a, a lot of what you know the black church has done as a community institution has been a very positive thing. Mm -hmm. uh, white churches, by contrast, have been very steeped in white supremacy for the most part. Um, and today, you know, white evangelicals, along with traditionalist Catholics and, and, and Mormons, are the most anti-democratic, authoritarian demographic that we have in this country. Um, but so, you know, I still think Christian privilege is in play for any kind of Christian, but obviously, you know, it, it's not as powerful for, say, an African-American Christian. Um, African-American churches themselves sometimes still get bombed, vandalized, as do mosques and synagogues. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful how we talk about Christian privilege, but I think we do have to talk about it because it's there. Yes. And it's reflected in our often unconscious media biases and the kind of biases that we have in our national discussions of topics like, for example, January 6th, right, mm -hmm. where um, you know, someone, uh, I'm not going to say exactly who, but a, a guy on Twitter right now who's fairly prominent and represents a fairly prominent anti-extremist organization was just disagreeing uh, with, with an article of mine saying, well, January 6th, that was just a lot of secular mo um, motivations given a, a religious veneer. And it's like, dude, that's not how anything works. Uh -huh. um, you know, there simply is no clear-cut dividing line between um religion secular motivations religion and politics for the kinds of people who contributed to and carried out you know whether directly there or they just were complicit like the christian element of that i think is in many cases very sincere i mean you have you have these prayers uh you have all of this like pentecostal singing and prophesying and and all this sort of religious fervor as well as religious symbols all throughout the insurrection. And you want to tell me it's all just fake. It's, it really doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. Dude, it does. And if the public won't wake up to that, if people representing major anti-extremist organizations won't see it, we're not going to make progress towards, you know, actually understanding and countering um, the, the people who are 
moving this country in a very fascist direction because they're Christians and we mm-hmm. have to be able to say that. <laughs> but, you know, the, the gatekeepers of the, the, you know, mainstream public sphere, they are deeply concerned uh, and, and tend to just believe that people need to be religious in order to be moral, or at least most people do. And maybe they themselves are not religious, but they're, oh, they're highly educated. You know, they're very ethical. But, but those ordinary people, those working class people, um, brown people, whoever, you know, they need to have religion to make sure mm-hmm. that they stay in their places and don't mm-hmm. upset us, the white liberals who have gatekeeping roles in, you know, <laughs> the major public sphere. <laughs> so they think they, they, they this very like elitist and patronizing and paternalistic attitude, I think, is part of what probably motivates it, but I think it's also unconscious generally. But they think that American secularization is either you know already a driver of polarization, which is total nonsense. All the empirical evidence points in the opposite direction, um, or that it's going to contribute further to the de- deterioration of um, American social life. Whereas you know it's a it's a symptom of the problem on uh, problems in Christianity, and they refuse to face that. For them, Christianity is just basically good. Yes, <laughs> it seems like there's like. There's the things that are reported. There are things that are not reported. There's wide uh, sweeping generalizations around mm-hmm. people, religious people and non-religious people. Um, oh, yeah. So the media, uh-huh. uh, there's a whole trope where they do, you know, this whole religious organizations do ex-philanthropic thing, right? So religious organizations do flood relief, refugee resettlement. Okay, great. They do. And that should be covered. But, you know, with this framing, you're leaving out a lot of secular organizations that do humanitarian work as well. And it's, it's, you know, so why do you frame it that way? Why don't you just say, here are the people who are doing these humanitarian things, and here's a Christian organization, and here's a Jewish or a Muslim one, and here's the American Humanist Association, and they're all doing this philanthropic thing. Or, you know, look at the the way that, like, students involved with Secular Student Alliance, the National um, Network of Secular Students on College Campuses, do service projects. No one pays attention to that because they're not Christian kids. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember I was living in Albany, Georgia for a, a short amount of time. That's south, southeast Georgia. And pretty devastating tornadoes came through. Mm-hmm. And there was an article saying sort of exactly that, that it was mostly, if not all, Christian groups who were doing the tornado relief in that area number one i naively went to uh, what is the big 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 relief evangelical graham funding oh samaritan's purse samaritan's purse i don't know why i just was trying to help (laughs) you know this is a naive person you know and so my little queer self wanted to go help and yeah, they make they give you an orientation, very Christian filled. They make you wear the same T-shirt. It has some type of like God message on it, and they also make you sign a release form saying you agree with certain values. And um, marriage between one man and one woman is on there, and you have to sign it to even volunteer with them. Meanwhile, I was also part of a queer group, and. We just spent days removing trees from people's yards, like delivering food. And of course there wasn't gonna be any coverage of Mm -hmm. what the queer group did in that Mm -hmm. city. 
That's and, uh, Christian privilege. <laughs> okay. That's really, in, really important to consider because I think, you know, the whole point of this podcast is to try to unpack Christian supremacy. What is it? How do we identify it? Where does it show up? And I think, I think that's hard because of, to me, often what feels like is a very thin line between Christianity and Christian supremacy. Do you have any distinctions between those two things? I mean, certainly, because again, Christianity has, since about the fourth century, it has mostly been a religion of empire and conquest. And so it has this long history of hegemony, cultural hegemony that is well established at this point. But Christianity has often also given rise to strands opposing the kind of mainstream. And, and Christianity does have, you know, the potential for kind of radical protest. And in the American context, we've seen that in the Black church, you know. So there can be healthy forms of Christianity. There is there is resistance to, to this dominant imperial form of Christianity. There's Latin American liberation theology. There's African American liberation theology, mm-hmm. um, and, and and so forth. And I think that there are. I mean, I know you know there are like LGBTQ affirming churches. There are ways to do Christianity that is healthy and pro-social. Mm-hmm. And and most individual Christians, honestly, are reasonably pro-social people. Um, but there are also very unhealthy ways to do Christianity. And I think, though, if you are in one of the more pro-social Christian groups, especially if it's a white one, it is incumbent on you, though, to face the, this history and think about how you are privileged and how you might be complicit in it and, and what you can do to help fight the, the dark side of your faith, which is the, the dominant side. I think that's something that, that you've got to deal with if you want to be like, oh, I'm one of the good Christians you actually have to think about how you're benefiting from Christian supremacy. So yeah, there's a, there's a distinction there. You can have the faith, I think, outside of that context, but it ha- you have to really work at decolonizing it. Mm-hmm. Same as like, you can't really just be a not racist white person because you're either just benefiting, uh, whether consciously or not, from systemic racism in our society, or you're trying to break it down and oppose it as an anti-racist. And that's that active part that I think Mm -hmm. uh, gets left out, dismissed, and not enough people are given the tools to to be that type of active. And and that's one thing that, you know, all these screaming white parents are trying to protect their precious pure white babies from with the CRT moral panic. So that they never actually have to think about how they got to be where they are in society. (laughs) It's really astounding. And... So then, you know, some people might not even be super versed or practiced in Christian church community, but this sense of morality uh, is is really what guides people and it gets ingrained in our culture. And then we are further uh, not given the tools to interrogate those things. They're just accepted as, as mm-hmm. fact. Yeah, and part of that is this this knee-jerk impulse that we have, and that's very present in the elite public sphere, to treat Christianity as inherently good. And so when prominent Christians do something that's clearly bad, there are always efforts to explain it away, right? Like when I first started pushing back hard on the whole fake Christians deflection, as I call it, it was when Mike Pence went to tour our southern concentration camps, you know, where they were separating the children from their families and so forth, people Mm -hmm. who were asylum seekers and refugees and and people were, were you know tweeting that Mike Pence is a fake Christian and I was like no he's not 
this is what Christianity does like uh-huh. a lot. Like this is most uh-huh. of its history. Right. <laughs> People feel really comfortable with cognitive dissonance. Like so much of this shit does not make sense, but somehow it's we less just... painful than having to face facts for many people mm. who see um, just looking at the actual history of America as a massive ego threat. I mean, not consciously, mm. they wouldn't say that. They can't say that. They, they have to keep deflecting and saying, oh, you libs are just a bunch of Marxists trying to push your CRT on my kids and I'm drawing the line there. Just uh, whiny uh, non-binaries <laughs> over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so many non-binaries. They're just destroying America and the moral fabric of the republic. <laughs> it's really fascinating to me that just the mention of these words, you say critical race theory and people lose their shit. And people have like no idea what it actually means. Um, and it's completely decontextualized. But I'm curious if you have some thoughts on like, on, on literally, how does this happen? Like, how has the right been able to so effectively galvanize with misinformation? The right's very good at creating and manipulating moral panics. Uh, okay. they, 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 they give people a simple concept and, and certain uh, talking points, and it doesn't have to be terribly coherent. They don't have to understand very much about it. They'll just, they'll just go into frenzied hate mode um, because I, I think honestly, the moral panic typically serves to keep the people who are invested in it from looking inward. So a lot of these people are probably afraid to process the trauma in their own communities. And so they externalize and project outward. Mm. Um, so they're always looking for, you know, the, the monster outside so they don't have to look at the monster within. That's how moral panic works. It's very seductive for mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, of people who do not have healthy ways to process their own traumas. Um, and, and it's just a kind of cycle that, um, that happens in kind of people, communities with where there are authoritarian dynamics and authoritarian mentalities. Um, so yeah. The, the right uses, and some people at the top can be very cynical and just figure out that, okay, we just need the next thing to get people upset about, but many people are true believers, you know. But it's, I, I do think that psychologically, it's a kind of deflection, a way of shielding them from seeing where the real horror mm-hmm. lies. And I think we see that a lot with like the Catholic Church and its abuse scandal, and now the many abuse scandals coming to light in the Southern Baptist Convention and other evangelical churches. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I was going to say the levels of irony, um, <laughs> considering all of the abuse that happens uh, within the church. And I was also, um, yeah, I was wondering what you thought about when you have things like Pizzagate or the more outlandish conspiracy theories from QAnon that really helps feed this like fringe narrative that then, I don't know, it kind of further helps us not, not interrogate uh, Christianity mm-hmm. broadly as, as something that has and can uh, be really harmful. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you look at, so I think that we can look at CRT, the CRT panic, like, through the same sort of lens, right? So they're invoking children. Look, they're making 
our children feel bad about something they didn't do. They're telling them that, you know, they're sinners just for being white. And obviously that's not intersectionality and that's not how anyone teaches about the history of racism. And clearly they just really don't want their kids to have to see how they have benefited from slavery and brutality, genocide and so forth. And they, and they don't want to see themselves as complicit in that or even just the heirs of that. So they panic and, and say, we can't have our kids learning this in school. This is a scandal. This is communism. This is cultural Marxism. And, and, and you know, you get people so, so worked up like that. Yeah. And um, there's just no having a rational, reasonable discussion or, or debate with them. And so that's, and that's how it works because the authoritarian right doesn't want their base to cede any ground ever on anything. But yeah, I've also said in the past that I think fundamentalism, well, first of all, a fundamentalist community is an authoritarian community, mm-hmm. right? It's it's um, kind of a microcosm of a larger authoritarian society or state or polity. And people with authoritarian mentalities and, and fundamentalists believers or practitioners of various religions, you know, I I look at fundamentalism psychologically as a misdirected response to trauma that's perpetuated then communally and generationally. If you look at who adult converts to such extremist forms of religion usually are, there are people who are coming out of very um, hard times, they're in a very vulnerable position, or their, their life is in flux in some way. And these are the kinds of people that um, the Christian right deliberately targets because they know they're the most likely to convert, right? Mm-hmm. So, so then you see something like Religion News Association, and um, one of their main staff reporters over there publishes a piece on this He Gets Us campaign, which clearly the people behind it are far right-wing Christians making this faux-woke appeal to real people in to um, evangelical churches. I mean, they point people to Alpha, courses to learn about the Bible. It was just as a well-known homophobic organization that started in the Anglican church in, in England uh, and now has gone global. Like people know what Alpha is. We know that they're promoting Alpha. These aren't our friends. These these aren't really like woke Jesus people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and and it's very telling that they don't, you know, actually take any political positions in these ads. They will definitely not say Black Lives Matter or anything like that. Um, but they use images of lots and lots of people of color. Mm. to make their appeal and claim that, oh, Jesus understands us. So chat on our website, text for prayer. We'll recommend that you get into a church home. We're going to win the kids back for Jesus this way, uh, which they're not because it's totally transparently manipulative. There's this whole company called Glue that's affiliated with the Koch brothers and the Council for National Policy. Um, It's involved with data mining operations that help the Christian right and these other sort of Republican and far-right conservative structures to, to figure out, you know, where are the vulnerable people in their communities? Where are the people who go to AA meetings or where are the people struggling with addiction that they can try to pull into their churches, you know? Um, and then, you know, if you're, if you're just raised in it as a kid, um, you're subjected to low-grade emotional and spiritual abuse constantly. You're indoctrinated. And so the trauma is perpetuated that way. You know, you don't have to convert as an adult in a vulnerable position, but you're just, you're taught the same dynamics. You're taught that 
corporal punishment is necessary. God prescribed it, and it's the only way to teach people that we're all rotten sinners who deserve to burn forever. You know. <laughs> oh, so- that, that old chestnut. <laughs> and think about it like that, like they're going in and getting folks who are really vulnerable. And and it's it's so gross, like the the mm-hmm. the preying on people, how they how they do that. Um, yeah. And it doesn't matter which way you're still praying in that sentence. Like it's yeah. all gross. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely feels it's like both spellings at the same time. You know, we have to employ our creativity and humor wherever we can in this work. Well, um, I think we can, we can sort of, uh, wrap up here. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for having me, Grace. This was excellent. Thanks. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. If you want to keep up with Chrissy's amazing coverage of the intersections of religion and politics, you can follow her on Twitter at C underscore Stroop for the inside scoop. Sorry, Chrissy, I had to say that at least once. Or you can check out her articles at Open Democracy and Religion Dispatches. I'll include those links in the show notes. Go With Grace is written and produced by me. Shout out to our stellar sound designer and editorial advisor for the season, Hideo Takui at A Chili Bowl Production. The theme song is by me. Additional music by Artie Sun, Bobby Cole, Humans Win, and Blue Sky Moon. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, please rate and review. It really helps new listeners find this podcast, and we'd love to know what you think. You can email me at grace at soulforce.org. We'd love to connect. Until next time, go with grace, my friends. Grace.